Coming up on Tech Nation, professional sports has become professional data analytics. Journalist Bruce Schoenfeld joins me to talk about his book, Game of Edges, the analytics revolution and the future of professional sports. What started with Michael Lewis's Moneyball almost 20 years ago now is bigger, more in-depth, and spreading to many sports, not just Major League Baseball, but World Soccer, the National Hockey League, and the NFL. The owners love it, but how is this sitting with everyone else? All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2013, I spoke with David Montgomery, a MacArthur Award winner and a professor of geomorphology at the University of Washington. He's the author of The Rocks Don't Lie, A Geologist Investigates Noah's Flood. I asked him, if he was looking for evidence of a flood, what would that be? Fieldwork in Tibet, where I actually discovered evidence for a big ancient flood, was landforms that were deposited where a river had entered a standing body of water. And so what happens is like a river that's carrying a lot of sediment, when that flows into a, a still body of water, a lake, for example, that sediment will all get deposited out, and it can create a feature on the bottom of a lake that when you drain the lake will then stand out in relief on the topography. So you learn to look for certain landform clues that uh, tell you what was there before. Well, from Tibet, we can go to Mount Everest. And I was shocked to learn that geological formations on Mount Everest, some of them were once at the bottom of a sea. Yeah, one of the little known facts about the top of Mount Everest is that it's actually formed out of trilobite poop. It's it's uh, stuff that was uh, um, <laughs> that's science from tiny. That's science. It's hard science. Uh, stuff that was um, deposited on the bottom of an ancient sea, and it's now capping the highest mountain in the world. Uh, and that's an observation that tells you that the water was over those rocks at some point. But it doesn't tell you that the water is over Mount Everest because the other possibility would be that the rocks that now form Mount Everest have risen from the bottom of the sea. And that distinction between how you interpret fossils that are in rocks at high elevation as either uh, old ocean used to be that high or that the mountains rose is actually a pretty basic distinction that's changed a lot in the history of thinking about geology. It's one thing to look at these traditional texts, however they came down to us in whatever way, but if we look at, at folklore, if we look at myths and history and, and, and tradition, we're seeing floods all the time, everywhere, right? Yeah, there's, there's flood stories from all over the world, not literally everywhere around the world, but from places <laughs> in many different parts of the world. And one of the things I learned in writing this book was uh, that the kinds of geological processes that could trigger really big floods in different parts of the world map pretty darn well onto some of the details in the stories of flood, or the flood myths, flood stories uh, from around the world. Like in the Pacific Northwest where I live, there's Native American stories of uh, floods that rose from the sea that read a lot like uh, eyewitness accounts of tsunamis, the sort of a big geologic hazard we know today that it's recently affected Japan and, and Indonesia, and that this coast where I live is, is prone to periodically. You talked about in the, in the 2004 tsunami that, that 
the sea gypsies, the Moken people, actually knew when that when the water before the tsunami it just it drained back away from the shore. They knew to run for the hills. Yeah, their their tradition of um, of a flood story of of when the sea goes out far and fast, you don't go out to look at all the marine life that's stranded in the in the tidal zone. You run for the hills. That story served them really well. Uh, they didn't have any casualties during the 2004 tsunami, um, and it's because they had this oral tradition that conveyed the sort of the geologic knowledge, if you will, of what to do in a bad situation. There's other examples of of people who uh, had similar oral traditions that uh, survived relatively unscathed, where where their neighbors who didn't were hammered by that tsunami. And so the idea that uh, an oral tradition could actually then enhance the survivability of your um, progeny sort of plays into the idea that that, um, folktales that described aspects of how the world worked in ways that helped people survive could be stories that would be told and retold uh, down through the generations and might survive long periods of oral transmission before people started to write material down. And I think that's at the root of an awful lot of flood stories around the world. This 2013 Tech Nation interview features David Montgomery and his book, The Rocks Don't Lie. He continues to be a professor at the University of Washington. In his most recent book, is growing a revolution, bringing our soil back to life. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, it's all about professional sports. Or maybe it's all about data analytics. Or maybe it's all about how humans behave when they have not only more money than they can spend in a lifetime, but they have more data than they know what to do with. I speak with journalist Bruce Schoenfeld. He joins me to talk about his book, Game of Edges, The Analytics Revolution and the Future of Professional Sports. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Bruce Schoenfeld. Bruce, welcome to Tech Nation. Thanks, Moira. Happy to be here. Now, you know, I think everyone first became aware that data and analytics could play a big role in professional sports. And it was all with Moneyball from Michael Lewis, that groundbreaking book that described the Oakland A's. And I mean, that was almost 20 years ago. What's happened since then with data and analytics and with professional sports? Well, a lot has. I I could write a book about it. (laughs) Uh, It's happened in different ways in different sports, and it's happened um, at different speeds. And part of that is that technology has changed so much in those 20 years. And some of those new innovations have helped teams in certain sports more than others. Baseball is interesting because uh, it's a sport of late adopters. It's a lot of people with a vested interest in um, the status quo But it's also a sport with no salary cap. 
So there are teams that must optimize or they can't be competitive, unlike the NBA, the NFL, the NHL, uh, in which um, if you hang in there and you're relatively smart, you know, every 20, 30 years, you should win a championship. In baseball, you're going to be terrible if you're spending a tenth as much money as everybody else, unless you're so smart that you can make up for it. And that has led to most of the fun, interesting things we've seen on the field. On the field's only half of it. There's also tech and data analysis off the field. Now, I was going to be flippant and ask, you know, can you chat GPT your way to a national championship? And has has artificial intelligence played a, a role? Because before it used to be lots of spreadsheets, lots of spreadsheets, and somebody analyzing it. Now are we in the AI age? I don't think we're there yet. I think different. Uh, there are teams that are certainly exploring that. Um, that's the chapter that's still being written. All the rest of this stuff is... Um, you know, if you think about it, I mean, for a long time, baseball teams, basketball, football, hockey teams were toys for rich people. And there really wasn't a lot of reason to optimize them. You know, even at the turn of the century, in most cases, they were businesses at the size at which they were still a small percentage of the portfolio of a really rich guy who owned them. And they were almost all guys, one or two women over the years. But now that sports franchises are going for, you know, two, three, four, five billion dollars, that's real money, even to rich people, right? So so now you start thinking, for example, in the early 60s, William Clay Ford bought the Detroit Lions to keep them in town. And he paid some some modest sum, you know, a few million dollars, because, you know, he owned Ford. So he could afford to just throw some money over there and have an NFL team. Today, the Ford family's holdings in the Lions are worth more than their holdings in Ford. <laughs> so you start to say, well, which is the real business here? And, and you know, which one do we have to really make sure is run optimally because that's our family's uh, heirloom? You know, that's what we're passing on. It's not the car. It's the sports team. So the impetus to do things in a smarter way has just grown and grown. And then at the same time, uh, another thing that's happening is that the people that are buying into these teams are no longer people that made their money, you know, making cardboard boxes the way Robert Kraft and the New England Patriots did. These are people that have made their money in venture capital, in investment banking, investing in Silicon Valley and in other tech industries and helping guide them to profitability. And they want to use those same best practices that they've used to, to help all these different companies. They say, well, listen, this is a five, four, five billion dollar business. We need to run it right. And there, there are people that are really open to doing that in a way that they weren't a generation ago. I want to start with collecting the data. So what is StatCast data? So StatCast is... is um, it's a tiny slice of this. It's a, an amalgamation of cameras that have been set up at every major league ballpark that track, that triangulate the location and the metrics of moving objects, such as baseballs and players. And what they're attempting to do, and this is, this is one aspect of StatCast. There are other aspects, let me just jump in and say, like how hard a home run is hit or how, how far it goes. But the interesting part is for all of baseball history, 
offensive statistics have been really easy to quantify. You know, you know, is is this guy a better hitter than that guy? Well, let's look at the metrics. This guy, the old-fashioned metrics, this guy had more home runs and RBIs and a higher batting average. Or the new metrics, this guy had a higher on-base percentage, or he hit balls harder, or he had more extra base hits, he had more um, hard contact, he had more. The offense is easy to quantify. Defense was a lot of people watching players run around and say, gee, he looks really good. And it was clear to anyone who was involved in data analysis that that wasn't good enough, that there might be an outfielder who reacted badly when a ball was hit. It took him a fraction of a second longer to figure out where it was going. And he'd run and make a great catch. And you'd say, that guy's fantastic. But it didn't really need to be a great catch if you'd reacted correctly or optimally and said, oh, that ball's going over there. I'm going to run and get that. Oh, I'm right there. I've got it. You say, oh, routine fly ball to that guy. Well, it's the same, the ball hit in the same place, but one guy reacted faster than another. With StatCast, which triangulates those movements, now you can tell. The problem is, well, there are a lot of problems. It doesn't work perfectly. There's some glitches. And you get, every team gets this big dump of information and some of them are better at processing it than others, which actually is really fun. Because if everybody did it the same, it would be homogenous. There are certain teams that use it more than others. And, and, and those teams, maybe they'll, their general manager will move on or, or, or their head of analytics will move on. Now maybe they'll they say, the new guy comes in and says, oh, I don't really believe in that stuff. I know a great outfielder when I see it. So it's data that if you know how, can be used to help you make informed decision about fielders. But it's fun, in, even in the past few years, since this has become readily available, you can now see there are outfielders that you say, well, this guy's really fast. He gets to a lot of balls. He gets to a lot of balls because he's fast. He doesn't necessarily play the hitters that well or take the most direct route to the ball. This other guy is not so fast, but look at him when this hitter comes up, he moves two steps to the left. And now we can see a, a, a line drive into the outfield. And using StatCast, we can say, you know, that's a hit 89% of the time. And look at that guy make that catch. Now, he doesn't even, he's not even running hard. But he took away it. That's only an out 11% of the time. And he did it without breathing hard. He must have really done something well. So now if you're a team, you can say, I like the guy, the way that guy runs his routes. There's something good going on there. And now I can quantify it in a way I couldn't before. You know, you bring me back years and years and years ago when Willie Mays played on the Giants. And I remember they used to say, you know, Willie Mays makes the hard ones look easy. And I won't name the other player. He makes the easy ones look hard. <laughs> well, they, they were on to something. They needed StatCast. <laughs> well, no, I, I, or they didn't. I think they were. I, I, I think it's fair to say that whatever metrics you use and however you're gauging it, Willie Mays would come up pretty high in all of them. But where this is helpful is with teams that, but because of that salary cap, they can't go out and get a Willie Mays. They can't make the two hundred and thirty million dollar Mike Trout signing or or. Uh, whoever the next guy's going to show, hey, Otani will be the next one. They have to work on the margins and they say, this guy is a little under-regarded. But you know, when we look at the StatCast numbers, 
he's as good a defensive center fielder as there is out there. And he's not, you know, we can pay him $6 million a year, which, uh, you know, I, I hate to tell you these days is not a lot in Major League Baseball. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, exactly. But that's how teams like the Tampa Bay Rays, the Houston Astros, the Los Angeles Dodgers, who can afford to do it the other way, but that's how they find these reclamation projects. There's another way I can jump right in since we're talking about this. High-speed cameras, which are able to record and, and, and uh, record at very, very slow motion the spin rate of a pitch. And now you can look at a pitch, and with it, by analyzing this high-speed camera, you can see how, how many times it rotates in a second. And there are pitchers who you say, boy, that guy's just not that effective. He hasn't, for some reason, he hasn't been that good. But maybe there's something there. And now you look and you say, oh, my gosh, his spin rate is among the highest of any pitcher. So if we can get this guy and we trust our pitching coaches, we, he's raw material that we can use, as opposed to that guy over there who has similar numbers. But look at him. He's essentially operating at peak capacity. He's not going to get any better. So if we have these two free agents to sign, we now have this tool and say this guy has the chance to be a lot better if we can teach him from here, this other guy, he's going to help us this much, and that's it. So, so the, the technological advancements over the course of the past decade or two have really helped frame this, this discussion. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is journalist Bruce Schoenfeld. You may have read his work in the New York Times Magazine, Fast Company, Sports Illustrated, and GQ, among others. He's here today with Game of Edges, the analytics revolution, and the future of professional sports. Now, just listening to you talk about the data on the players and maybe once a free agent, meaning they've been in professional sports, and then they're, you know, they're saying, well, I could sign with another team. How far down does this data go? Is it in college sports? Is it in high school sports? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, some teams are using it as far down as high school. Some teams are using it. A lot of teams are using it in college in one way or another. Um, but it's not uniform, not uniformly applied. And so it does give some teams a, uh, a bit of an advantage. Um, it's difficult. Some of this stuff is only capturable, like the StatCast thing, stuff we were talking about. That doesn't work unless you have the three cameras mounted in the ballpark. So that's not going to be in, in college stadiums. But the use of analytics in the broader sense of data analysis, of gathering information, however you can do it, and analyzing that information has, is pervasive all the way down to youth sports. You have these tools now, um, a, a tool called Rapsodo is one. Uh, there, 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 are, there are a bunch of different ones that you actually can put something on the end of a baseball bat and it measures all kinds of different metrics, uh, not just the exit velocity of the ball, but the swing velocity and the swing plane. And you can say to a youth player, a nine, 10 year old player, your swing is not on plane. Look, and, and you know, that's something that you can, and the naked eye is say, gee, there's something wrong with his swing. Now you can say, look, you're good up until here. And then you need to do this. And all of that is, is really changing, optimizing the way that, um, that players play. It's, it's worth saying it's happened mostly up till now on the pitching side. 
a lot of these metrics, a lot of these tools have really helped make really good pitchers almost invincible. And part of the problem that we've seen with baseball in the past, you know, ongoing in the past five, 10 years has been a result of the, the fact that analytics has made pitching too good. And hitters faced with pitchers who are unlikely to give up three or four hits an inning so that they can score a run, hitters start to say, you know what? I'm not going to, I know the craft of hitting is to, is to, is to uh, hit the ball where it's pitched and poke it into left field for a, you know, for, for a hit or, or, you know, a, a hard ground ball up the middle for a hit. Well, that's, that's unlikely to happen in today's baseball with pitchers who are so good and knowing from analytics, pitchers who operate best in a shorter span of time. So if a pitcher knows he's only going to have to throw five innings, a starting pitcher, uh, he'll throw very differently. If a reliever says, say, look, you're only coming in for the seventh inning, which we now know from data analysis, much more effective if they only pitch one inning. Great. I'm just going to throw everything I have at them in one inning. So as a result, these hitters say, you know, we're probably not going to put together four hits in an inning. I'm just going to try to swing for a home run. And if I, you know, if the pitcher makes a mistake, I've got a better chance of helping my team score a run. Even if I strike out three times out of four and that fourth time I homer, uh, I've got a better chance of helping my team. The problem is that's not very entertaining to watch. Yeah. And most when, when, when MLB, Major League Baseball did a, a survey of what people want to see, they love triples. They love doubles. They love stolen bases. They love great fielding plays. None of that happens in the world of what the analytics people call the three true outcomes, which is a strikeout, a walk, or a home run. Those are true outcomes because it doesn't depend on how good the fielders are behind you if you're a pitcher. If you strike them out, you did it. If you walk them, you did it. And if he homers, he did it, and it's on you. And so in those three true outcomes are becoming more and more prevalent. And baseball is reacting to that, as you see this year with rule changes, and that has its roots in pitchers being too good. And that has its roots in tech. Where are we in soccer? Soccer is an interesting case. It, analytics is being used there. It, it, again, these were late adopters. Let's, let's talk about England first. England's, in, England is, uh, the Premier League in England has become the best soccer league in the world. One of the things about the Premier League is the English soccer establishment feels besieged by Americans. Right now, nine of the 20 clubs are owned by Americans. And the soccer world is mistrustful of, you know, we're Johnny-come-latelys in this sport. Although, I must point out, we did beat the English in the World Cup in 1950. Way back in 1950, <laughs> we upset them. But by and large, uh, you know, it was uh, soccer was an afterthought until very recently in the U.S. They don't want to be told how to how to uh, uh, how to run a soccer game, and so for them, until very recently, analytics were a baseball thing, an American thing. Uh, you can't import that into the beautiful game. It's too difficult. It's to quantify. It's actually not too difficult to quantify, and Liverpool especially has made a study of this that's gone as far as hiring someone who's a particle physicist who used to be at the super collider uh, in, at, at CERN uh, to run their analytics. A guy named Will Spearman is now the analytics, will, it will take over as the analytics head 
uh, at Liverpool with the coming season. And he's studying um, every possible. He, he, he got his start when he realized that the movement of players on the field was very similar to the movement of electromagnetic fields that intersected with each other and that repelled and attracted each other, depending on where the what? ball was. <laughs> well, when you, yeah, because if if you have the ball and science it, in the middle, of all this. right? Wow. Well, think about it. If you have a ball and you're dribbling a ball and a guy comes toward you, you go the other way. Yeah. Right. Or you pass it. So there are those patterns. So he's looking at that. He's created a system, and the guy who he's worked for for the past few years, Ian Graham, they've created systems that assign a value to every single thing everyone does on the soccer field, not just when they have the ball, but if I run all the way down the right side, I'm going to lure a defender. I got to attract a defender who needs to take note of me. Well, that's got to create space for someone else. And that then creates an opportunity for a goal to be scored. With all that, the greatest use of analytics in soccer is with uh, what they call recruitment identifying and going out and obtaining new players. And it's very difficult to tell how good somebody is without data. It's easy enough in the Premier League where you, where it's a sort of a closed circuit. But if I say to you, there's this really great soccer player in Belgium, he's playing in the second level in Belgium, but his skills look, I watched him play. He's, he's amazing. Yeah, really? Well, how amazing is he? You know, because he was playing against people of indeterminate quality. And is what he's doing beautiful or productive? And at, at what rate is he doing it? Is he scoring a beautiful goal every two games, but not doing anything of consequence otherwise? Well, now you have a way to analyze these players and to compare them to each other apples to apples. So the great breakthrough now, or the great, the next great frontier is to come up with a number, to assign every player a number, to figure out a way to take everything into account and say, this guy's a 72 and that guy's a 68. So this guy in some quantifiable way is better with everything wrapped up together. Now, even that though is not definitive because with the style of play that your team has, you might prefer that 68. The 72 might do a, a lot of great things, but not things that are as valuable to your style of play. The 68 might do things that are perfect for you. And by the way, he links up great with the left winger whose skills complement him exactly. That's something else that needs to be quantified, needs to be assessed. So the, you know, the common theme that we're seeing here with baseball, with soccer, and with everywhere else is the teams that are smart enough to take every, all of this into account and to really take it seriously and to not just have an analytics department that's off in the corner doing incredible things and then kind of throwing it up into the air, but to have the DNA in their entire organization so that top to bottom, everybody believes in this. Those are the teams that have an edge. You see there's a, there's a team in the Premier League, Brentford, which had never been in the Premier League until a few years ago. And you know who owns it? A professional gambler, <laughs> a guy who made his living gambling, because who knows more about analytics than a gambler? That's what gambling is, right? It's, it's quantifying things and making an assessment based on that. Brentford does some really interesting things. I'm speaking with journalist Bruce Schoenfeld, the author of Game of Edges, The Analytics Revolution and the Future of Professional Sports. We'll talk more 
after a break. Tech Nation programs, as well as biotech-only podcasts, are available wherever you get your podcasts. Check out technation.com and biotechnation.com. In the second half of our show, more sports, more analytics, and what about the fans? Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with journalist Bruce Schoenfeld, the author of Game of Edges, The Analytics Revolution and the Future of Professional Sports. You see there's a, there's a team in the Premier League, Brentford, which had never been in the Premier League until a few years ago. And you know who owns it? A professional gambler, <laughs> a guy who made his living gambling, because who knows more about analytics than a gambler. They've had more sustained success in the last couple of years than they've had in their entire history. But one thing that they do, and I want to make the turn here to sort of the dirty underbelly of all this, Brentford has these players that are perfectly suited for their system. They're, they, 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 in working in their system, they amass these statistics and other teams that are richer see them and they say, we got to go get that guy. Hey, Brentford, we're going to give you $80 million for that guy. And Brentford says sold because we know how to replace these guys at a replacement level. And we're going to use that money to make up, like in baseball, to make up for the shortfall because you're rich and we're not that rich. Well, that's great, except if you're a Brentford fan and you say, wait a minute, that's my favorite player. And, And the guy you sold two months ago, he was my favorite player before him. And I love that our club is good now. And I love that we are able to play the Manchester United's and Chelsea's of the world on an even basis. But this optimized version of the sport is not so optimal for me who just wants to go to the game and root for my guys. Let's transfer that back to baseball again. The Tampa Bay Rays have optimized baseball. They are more heavily into analytics than anybody else. They too churn through their players. They, they pay them. The, the almost a subsistence wage for their talent level. And when they get to a certain point, 
They let them go, off they go, and they bring in the next guy and do it again. Well, if you're a Rays fan, that's not a lot of fun. And maybe it's no coincidence that their attendance, other than the the Oakland A's who, as you know, they're in the Bay Area, seem bound for Las Vegas and have alienated, have systematically alienated all their fans. Other than the A's, the Rays draw worse than any club in baseball. Is it coincidence? It may not be because while, because optimizing the sport for performance is not the same as, as attracting fans for the reason that we've always been fans, which is not to see an optimal product, but to see a soulful, relatable product. And that's the disconnect here. And it's sort of the, the, um, the reason that there's been a pushback against tech. Now, for years, if you wanted to insult somebody, you'd say, probably not to their face, but you say, oh, that guy, he's a hockey puck. And that meant he was dumb. I mean, how smart can a hockey puck be? Now, there are transmitter chips in hockey pucks. Hockey pucks are super smart. They, they are not... Uh, you the, want your daughter to marry one. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I, I can't speak to their fealty and, and uh, you know, ability to earn a living. But... But all the things that those three baseball cameras do, the tiny little electronic chip embedded into a hockey puck also does. And it enables it, the, the, that, that chip and cameras in arenas enable hockey to um, produce metrics that the sport never was able to produce. Hockey's, hockey's always been a tough sport to quantify, even more so than soccer. The players move around furiously and they come on and off the ice. And, and, you know, it's really hard to know who's doing what at any given time. Well, now with an embedded chip and with a StatCast-like system, hockey is generating lots and lots of numbers. Now, why is that important? It's important because of another big use of data in sports today, which is gambling. Gambling has now been legal in some states, what, three, four years. It's not legal yet in all states. California is going to get it. They don't have it yet, but it's now available. And if you live in, if it well, about one third of Americans by population are able to legally gamble on sports and they do it on their phone and they do it in real time. And it's not like Moira, when we were growing up and you made the big bet, you know, who's going to win the giants or the Dodgers. I'll bet you five bucks on that game. And then you went away, they played the game and you came back the next day. Ha ha. I was right. You owe me five bucks. Today's much too fast paced for that. They'll bet on they'll bet on what's the, who's going to score the first goal in a game, and who's going to uh, uh, how many shots on goal is this team going to have in the third period? It's Calgary Edmonton. Let's bet. Let, wow, it's Edmonton's minus two. I think Calgary's they're they're roaring. I think they're going to have more shots on goal. What gambling does for for sports leagues. And the reason they've embraced it is it takes all that dead time, all those routes that nobody cared about the end of those NBA games when one team's winning by 30. And now you can have money on that. Okay. The Lakers are up by 30 going into the fourth quarter, but let's see who's going to win the fourth quarter. The Lakers or the Pistons. The Lakers are clearly the better team, but the Pistons, Lakers have nothing to play for. They're coasting. Pistons are getting routed. Maybe they're going to put in their young guys who want to show what they can do. You get calculated. Now, all of a sudden, your wife says, hey, can we go to dinner? No, no, I'm watching Lakers Pistons. Yeah, but it's 96-68. I know, but I have money on the fourth quarter. So now the leagues get people to watch that much longer. 
So the 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 so hockey has now found a way to quantify things so that they can get in on all this and whatever what the gambling companies are looking at as we get more and more of this is who's going to which player is going to skate the fastest or which pitcher is going to throw the most pitches over 98 miles an hour or which all of this relies on data it relies on data on the front end to catch these statistics and it relies on data on the back end so that people can gamble in real time and not uh, one of the one of the difficulties with this has been that if you have a lag time in processing the bet, if you're at the game and a guy homers, you get you bet right away. This guy's going to homer, and they haven't caught up <laughs> on the on the uh, the gambling companies have not yet processed that homer. You just saw it, but if they're watching the game on television and, and putting in the da- data based on that, it hasn't even been transmitted yet. So they need a special fire hose of data. And there, there's a company called Sport Radar. There are a bunch of people, a bunch of competing companies, not a bunch, there's several competing companies that are trying to uh, uh, speed up that process. So there's data that, that, that suffuses this whole thing. It's all about getting all this information and whether you're the team, whether you're the club, whether you're the gambling company, whether you're the fan, using this data for your own means. Now, let's talk the NFL. They have sensors in uniforms. What are the, what are what are these sensors doing? Yeah, yeah. The NFL is is experimenting with wearables, wearable um, devices, and their use of data is to find out who's performing optimally and who's not. And that's the kind of thing I don't. I know you, you can't see me, and your listeners can't see me. I'm wearing one of these Whoop watches, which uh, uh, it's a it's a, a Boston company. My son gave it to me. And this Whoop watch tells me I played basketball today, and it told me what my maximum heart rate r- was, and it told me last night how many hours I slept. And not only that, it broke down my sleep into REM and and uh, light sleep and deep sleep and awake time, and then it showed me exactly when those were. Well, all of that kind of stuff would be great for NFL teams to know. The off-the-field stuff is problematic with collective bargaining. It's very hard to say, hey, if you're going to play on our team, you got to wear these monitors all day long so that when you have sex with your wife, we see how much your heart rate goes up. That's tough. <laughs> yeah. But on the field, they kind of belong to you, right? right? right. So, uh, so on the field, you say, all right, everybody wear these sensors, and now we can see who's dogging it. You say, boy, hey, uh, you know, Johnson over there, you, you only ran 1.2 miles during the entire practice. You know, Atkins ran 6.8 miles. What are you doing? And you never achieve maximum heart rate. You got to push yourself more or your O2 saturation is low. We, we're going to have you make this modification. It's all about optimizing performance, optimizing those athletes. It's imagine the things that data does with a Formula One car going around, you know, all the different sensors in, in a high-performance vehicle. I have it in the car I drive, and I sure don't drive a Formula One car. It's telling me all kinds of stuff. So imagine the level that a Formula One does. Well, this is applying that kind of high-performance, uh, the, the sensors uh, gathering data to people. What can we do with, what, what can we learn about people that can, we can choose who has capacity to, to, to be better and then once we know that, we can help them optimize. Well, I don't care which sport you're talking about. How do the players feel about this? How do the players' associations feel about this? 
And what impact does it have on players' contracts now? Yeah, that, that's super interesting. The players' associations are against it, and you can imagine why. It has a lot of impact on contracts. And you, you take a player who says, listen, I've done everything you asked, and look at my statistics. I'm a wide receiver. I've caught all these passes. I've done all this. Yeah, but we can see from all these different things that we've attached to your body that your heart rate just doesn't get high enough or your body fat isn't getting low enough or your maximum acceleration is just never going to get high enough to be great. So we're not going to keep you around. We're going to get another guy. There's privacy issues and there is, there, there's a lot of trepidation from unions across all the sports in giving, uh, in seeding, uh, seeding with a C seeding, um, this, this information, seeding the right to teams to collect uh, uh, bodily information, metrics on performance for their athletes with the idea of using them to make both um, personnel decisions on who to, who to use where and also how much to pay them. So yeah, you're, you've pinpointed one of the issues here with this. And that's, that's like, like AI, like a few other things. This is the early stages of, of, uh, of this. And uh, it's, it's unclear how it's going to play out. My guest today is journalist Bruce Schoenfeld. You may have read his work in the New York Times Magazine, Fast Company, Sports Illustrated, and GQ, among others. He's here today with Game of Edges, the analytics revolution, and the future of professional sports. Well, I'm a professor at the University of San Francisco, and we have a master's degree in sports management. We have for a long time. I know some of the people, they're great and all this. Never occurred to me until I read your book to go and look at what courses they had. And all of a sudden, I realized, ooh, well, sports law, sports economics and finance, quantitative analysis and sports, these are all required courses. Strategic management and human, well, I don't know what RES and sports is, but oh, re human resources, accounting and budgeting in sport, um, analytical business development and sales, and those are the required courses. You know, like, it's like global sport management immersion week. They go someplace out of the country, you know, and it's like, what? And it's like, so marketing a professional team, event management and marketing, college athlete, college athletics, digital era. And it's like, this is all talking about what you're talking about. Well, you know, I'll tell you, it, there was a time not so long ago when other businesses looked at sports teams and said, you know, these guys are the toy department. <laughs> they, what, there's nothing I can learn from them. They go out and play games and, and they were marketed into this century Basically, they were marketed by opening up the doors and saying, we're here. Okay, the box office is open. Come to a game. I, I tell a story in my book about a guy named Tim Zhu, Z-U-E, uh, who, who um, now runs the whole financial side of, of the Boston Red Sox and, uh, used to, and, and really was the, the analytics guy Fenway Sports Group hired. They own the Red Sox. They own Liverpool. They now own the Pittsburgh Penguins of the NHL. They have a NASCAR team. And Tim Zhu is, the, is, is their analytics genius. And he has helped implement so much on the business side that he was asked to go speak at a, uh, um, at a, chief, at a chief technology officer conference, or a, I, think it was a, I think it was actually a, a, a CEO conference in Boston. I should know this. It's in my book. But it was a, a big conference drawing people from all different industries. And I, t I talked to one of the, the, the women 
who heard his speech, she was in banking. She was at, I don't know, Wells Fargo, Bank of the West. You know, I, I, I haven't, uh, I wasn't prepared to tell this story, but it's in the book. I should read the book and you'll, you'd get the real version of this. But basically she said to me, you know, only a couple of years ago, I would have said, I'm not going to listen to some Red Sox guy. Tell me about business. What does he know? But when you think about what they have to do and what their, their business encompasses, this is a, a pro sports team today is a, basically a mutual fund of interests. It's a, uh, uh, it's content, it's entertainment, it's catering and hospitality, it's real estate, it's fashion. It's all of this under the same umbrella. And unlike a mutual fund, the consumer attraction to it is so strong that people go around wearing T-shirts with the name of it on there. You know, nobody, you, nobody goes out and spends, spends 80 bucks for a, you know, a, a T-shirt that says, you know, American Mutual Fund on it. But they wear T-shirts that say Golden State Warriors, Boston Red Sox. So there's something going on here that is much more complex than almost every other business out there. And these teams have learned how to harness all of this, take all this information and apply it among all the different tendrils of their business. If you're a CMO or a, a chief technology officer or a CEO at a business, it would behoove you to go hear these guys speak because they know things that you don't at this point. And, and oh my gosh, we wouldn't have thought that in, in 2004 when the, the Moneyball era stored, started. If someone had said to you, the, the biggest businesses, the most highly evolved businesses in America have a lot to learn from sports teams, you would say that's insane. But that's where we are. And you wouldn't buy a sports team now unless, you know, it's, it's billions of dollars, apparently, from everything I'm reading here. Well, people who are buying sports teams now are, more, are increasingly parts of groups. It's either a bunch of people getting together. Um, Joe Lacob bought the Golden State Warriors, um, and he very carefully put together a group of partners. He called it casting the movie. And he brought in people like Nick Swinworm. Uh, from Zappos and Chad Hurley from YouTube, who had experience and expertise in different areas. And then when you think of this, you say, okay, it used to be if you were a minority investor in a club, let's say you have a super rich friend, you, you, let's say you, you and Steve Ballmer are longtime friends and Steve buys the LA Clippers. You say, Steve, can I buy in? I'll give you a million bucks. You know, give me a tiny little bit of the team. I just want to be, I have an extra million laying around. I don't have that much money, but I, I, can, I can afford a million. Well, a million dollars, you know, even when a, if something costs 50 million, a million dollars is 2%. So you're not, you're not making a lot of the decisions, but you're in on it, right? I mean, a million dollars is, you know, that's a lot. <laughs> you're in, you're part of the deal. You're part yeah. of the deal. And if you invest $50 million, gee, you could get half a team. You could make a, you know, Robert Tisch bought seven, paid $75 million for the, uh, for the New York Giants um, from the Mara family, to, became co-owner of the New York Giants for $75 million. He said to me, I'm just going to pretend I never had that $75 million. Well, not a lot of us can do that, but $75 million, you got half a team. Today, if you pay $75 million, if I, I have $75 million, I'm going to invest it in a team. Okay, well, you know, if if it's if 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 it's if it's seven hundred and fifty million dollars, if that's the price, you're only getting ten percent. If it's you know three and a half billion dollars, three three quarters billion dollars, I mean, 
look at how little you're getting. You're not you're on, you're not on the radar. You don't own one percent of this team, right? You and who else is going to buy this team? Yeah. So so what's the uh, what's the allure for a Chad Hurley to invest in the Golden State Warriors? The allure is the promise that you'll be heard. You know about this stuff. You know about video. You know about the internet and entertainment. We need your help. So Joe Lacob assembled a group of these rich people. And that increasingly on that model is how teams are now, are now being bought. Part of it too, 20, 30% are often institutional investors. There are a bunch of groups out there now that are buying into multiple teams. They don't own the controlling interest in any but they own 20, 30% of a lot of different ones. The reason for that is if you look at what companies have grown the most, and I had, I had a guy named Randy Vataha, who's a former wide receiver with the Patriots, who, who's his, his, uh, uh, his job became, his profession became, he hooked up people who wanted to buy teams with people who wanted to sell them. And he said, you know, if you lived in Boston at the end of the 20th century, and you said, boy, I got $50 million, I want to make sure that my, my kids get it. We're, I'm gonna, what I'm going to invest in, I know, I'm going to invest in Wang computers because that'll be around forever, right? Or I'm going to invest in you know, any of a number of these, of these companies. Well, they're all gone or, they're, or they've kind of, they've accrued a little bit. You know what four companies in Boston have made the most money in the past 25 years? They're the Celtics, the Red Sox, the Patriots, and the Bruins. <laughs> And there's a lot of tech and biotech in Boston, so I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. So, so those are the those are the equities. If you're if you're if you have a fund and you said we you know we're going to buy into a little bit into a company, these are blue chips. They're 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 uh, um, they're cloistered. They are um, scaffolded by their leagues to such extent that they can't lose money, because if one team is is doing bad financially, that the price of all of them goes down. These leagues depend on being able to say a franchise is worth this much because you can't lose. So they make sure teams are competitive. They make sure that the finances are right. So if you're an institutional investor, you say, there's no safer place to put my money. I don't know if, I don't know if uh, Facebook is going to be around. I don't know if Zoom is going to be around or any of these things are going to be around, but I'm pretty sure the San Francisco Giants are going to be around. Amazing. Amazing. You know, this is all possible because of human nature, because of the fans. You know, Bruce, you're a fan of sports. What is it about watching sports that we humans love so much? What is that? Well, you know, I think a lot of it is the stuff that all of these best practices are kind of taking away from us. And that is this this connection, this idea that these are, this is my tribe. These are my people. This is my place. You know, if you, I've always said, if you move to Tampa and you say, I, you know, I grew up in Cleveland. I grew up in Milwaukee. I moved to Tampa. Tampa's great. I got to tell everyone how great Tampa is. Well, you, you know, you can't walk down the street and shout out, we've got great libraries. You know, <laughs> I love our shopping district. But this is your pride. I, 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 I've moved to this place. I love it. Or conversely, I'm living in Tampa, but I'm a Detroiter. I still love Detroit. Well, the way you do it is by having the sports team fill that role. They're the representation of this place for you. You see it in England with all these soccer teams. 
these, you know, it's not just the top teams, the second, third, fourth division, these people that go to every game of their team, ah, these people that go to every game of their team and they, and they, uh, they live and die with every loss. These teams are never going to be good. They're never going to make the Premier League. They're never going to win the Champions League. They're in places like you know, the, the, the Doncaster Rovers or Sheffield Wednesday. But there's an emotional attachment there. Well, the problem with the iteration of sports that is reaching toward optimization is that that's not the most economically rewarding. The Doncaster Rovers of the world are never going to make money. What makes money is a closed circuit of a certain number of teams that are all really good playing against each other. And so there's this, this kind of clash between the optimized version and the emotional version. I, my friend Robert Elms, who I interviewed in the book, said, you know, one of the things that's happening is this, this treating, the, the clubs treating their fans like customers. And he said, you know, the problem with being a customer is if you have two or three bad experiences, you stop going. Now, he's a fan of a soccer team called Queens Park Rangers. He said, if, 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 I was, if, if crap football was going to put me off, I would have stopped going 25 years ago. <laughs> I'm not going there to get anything, to get a result. I'm going there because that's what I do, and that's what my friends do. And that relationship is not really well understood by the venture capitalists and and investment bankers who own a lot of the teams now. And that's, we're seeing this clash of ideals between why we follow sports and this optimization, this, the, the use of analytics to optimize. And I, I'll, I'll tell you a quick, quick, quick story about this that I write about in my book. A few years ago, the Tampa Bay Rays played in the World Series against the Dodgers. And they had a pitcher who was pitching uh, a, a masterpiece of a game, one of the best World Series performances ever. And he was, he was into the seventh inning, and everybody knows by the analytics that once you get that deep in a game, your, um, your ability to get batters out plunges. Several reasons. You've been throwing for a while. The hitters have seen all your pitches. They've, they, they, they've, they've become accustomed to you. And as opposed to the new guy throwing in the bullpen who's fresh, who probably throws harder than you because he's a specialist and he's only going to pitch one inning. So analytically minded teams know, take that guy out before they get three times uh, uh, around in the order. This guy, Blake Snell, was pitching the game of his life. There were Tampa Bay fans watching that game. But much more than that, there were baseball fans who watched baseball to see this kind of heroic emotional performance. Here was Tampa Bay may be able to beat the mighty, rich Los Angeles Dodgers and win a World Series. This was game six, but they had a chance to win the World Series. And here was Blake Snell writing his name into baseball legend by pitching this performance that had rarely been seen in a World Series. Of course, the Rays took him out. And the reliever came in, gave up the tying run, and the Rays went on to lose. And people said, well, wait a minute. How can you do that? Baseball's lost its soul. Why would you remove a guy who was pitching the game of his life and it was going to be this incredible? And it's the moment that Blake Snell came out of the game, TV set switched off around America. And the Rays said, well, wait a minute. That's not our job. Our job is to try to win the game. And their manager, Kevin Cash, said, maybe that was the wrong decision this time, or maybe the result was wrong. It wasn't 100 to 0 percent, but the analytics show that probably 65, 70 percent of the time, the right decision is to take that pitcher out. 
I would do it again a hundred times, and you know what? We'd win that game 70 of them. Well, what you had there is a, a construct of the optimal way to play the game that's misaligned with what fans want to see. And baseball and soccer and all the other sports are going to have to be really careful going forward to align the way, to align how they reward teams and make sure that they're rewarding teams for doing things that are entertaining. So that in basketball now, that, that what we used to do when you try to get the ball close to the basket for a layup or a dunk or a beautiful play, now they keep throwing the ball out to the three-point line where they shoot three-pointers. Yeah, it makes sense. They're worth three instead of two. You don't need an advanced mathematics degree to say, boy, if I can make you know, almost as many shots from there, which a lot of these guys can, that's a better shot. It's just not a lot of fun to watch. So that's kind of the, 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 the new frontier here. How to use analytics in a way that isn't just optimal on the field, but the entire product is optimized in a way that in some cases means not optimizing things. Does it make sense? It totally makes sense. And Bruce, I have to tell you, this has been terrific. There's Listeners will say, is there any more in the book? There is so much more in the book. <laughs> we, we only kind of strung across the surface here. But uh, thank you so much. You know, you're always welcome on Tech Nation. I hope you come back. See us again. Thanks so much, Moira. It's, it's a treat to talk to you. My guest today is journalist Bruce Schoenfeld. His book is Game of Edges, The Analytics Revolution and the Future of Professional Sports. It's published by W.W. Norton. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.